This is RPG A Day Month with Andy Goodman from Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks. Day 27, Favour. I've only gone and bloody done it again. I recorded the wrong word. <laughs> and I only realised that after I'd finished the episode and edited the whole thing. I thought today's word was flavour. But you know what? I think it's a better word than favour. So, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to listen to flavour. Something that I often find quite strange about role-playing games is when we, um, when we have scenes where the players, where the characters are eating. <laughs> um, I don't know why I find this strange, but I do find it strange. I think... What I find, and I know I'm talking, strange was a word from a previous day, but anyway, today's word is flavour, <laughs> okay? Not strange. <clears throat> what, what I find funny, let's say, is that we all seem to enjoy the descriptions of our imaginary characters eating imaginary food. We almost, we almost enjoy it in the way that we would enjoy it if we were really eating it. There's sounds of satisfaction and delight. And people go, mmm. And, of course, <laughs> of course, I, I, I guess the reason that we get this reaction is that our descriptive and imaginative faculties can quite easily evoke the memories and even sensations of eating food and of tasting food, which is pretty interesting, really, if you think about it. You know, just talking or thinking about food can make you hungry. Of course, we all know that. But can you, can you conjure up the taste of a delightful little morsel on your tongue? The crunch of that crispy chicken skin, the delectable moistness of that rib as the flesh pulls away from the bone. That um, indefinable, chewy, and yet resilient sensation of biting into a piece of baklava. Baklava, I, I mentioned baklava because the, the, in one of the recent scenes, the players were all ordering baklava in a Cairo cafe, and they were all really enjoying it. Hold on a second. I'm about to put Snowy down. Snowy, you're being put down. Let's see. Yes, I'm with Snowy again. And all I can smell is smoke. There is a distinct possibility that we might have to evacuate at some point. The wind patterns are changing today, apparently. And the, 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 the fires that have been in Vacaville and Guerneville and San Jose, and um, I mean, there's, there's like 800 fires at the moment. <laughs> it's insane. There were over a thousand lightning strikes that started, uh, 800 fires. It's the biggest fire event ever, apparently. And the smell of smoke is everywhere. Um, yeah, so uh, I was actually thinking, where, where are we going to evacuate to? <laughs> because, um, well, you know, we don't really want to stay in a hotel. Um, our, 
nearest and dearest friends have already evacuated <laughs> to, to 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 one of their relatives' houses. <laughs> Maybe we'll go there as well. I don't know, but um, but they're in the fire zone too. So who knows? I mean, this is kind of crazy. In fact, I'm looking at a burnt out tree stump right now. I'd never really noticed it before. It's because, and, and I, I come here a lot with Snowy, you know, walking down Grizzly Peak a bit. Spoiler alert, I don't actually live on Grizzly Peak. I'll just let that sink in. <laughs> I'm not a liar. I'm not a liar. Let's say I just stretch the truth a little. Grizzly Peak is the next road up. We're on another road. I didn't really want to tell people the road I live on. And Grizzly Peak is a good, is a cool name. So I kind of say I live on Grizzly Peak, which is not that far from the truth. It's only a few hundred feet away from us. And also, Grizzly Peak is a place in Glorantha. Unsurprisingly, there were places around here that um, Greg Stafford took the names from for, for Glorantha, because this is where RuneQuest was, was imagined and spirited up. These rambling, at some point I'm going to stop rambling and I'll actually do an episode that's purely about the word. But yeah, let's get back to flavour. So it is fascinating, I think, that we can tell each other about food and then taste and, and then imagine that we were eating and tasting it. Um, so maybe it's not that weird that we do it in, in RPGs, but at the same time, it's a bit of a as a reward it's not entirely satisfying is it i mean yes we can we can do some imaginative play around what it's like to eat that that um crunchy bit of chicken skin tear it away from from the um the white flesh underneath that kind of tang of salt and and that deep mellowness of the garlic rubbed in with the herbs and the butter we can we can imagine it, but it's not really much of a reward in game, is it? it it's a huge reward in in life. You know, eating food is is one of the great pleasures. I actually think that eating a good meal is is the greatest pleasure. Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen to these it's fine it's fine no i've always joked that that you know a good meal is better than sex but um yeah morrissey also used to say he, he just prefers a nice cup of tea not that we should be quoting morrissey anymore but anyway so you know what is the point of, of having these imaginary pleasures in a game where there are real rewards to be gained? You know, character progression, um, success, you know, winning a, winning a battle, um, figuring out a puzzle, solving a trap. Um, these, these are real rewards which have tangible benefits in the game, but... <laughs> you know, going to the tavern and deciding you're going, to, you're going to spend two gold pieces on the fancy meal rather than a silver piece on the slop, that's always seemed kind of weird to me. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. You're, 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 you're trying to 
um, maintain some kind of consistency of your character if they if they like the high life and you know it's like staying in the fancy room <laughs> it's like why really <laughs> I mean really why do it why do it why don't save your money for something useful but um, I, I kind of like it when players do that because it's saying something about how, how much they're believing in the world it's like no I want to indulge my my, <laughs> my imaginary character lying in this imaginary bed but I guess that's the flavour of the world that you create I think I want to talk about cooking a bit. I do a lot of cooking, especially since I haven't been working. I'm taking over the main cooking duties, so I cook dinner every night for us. And um, I'm a pretty good cook, really. I've been doing it a long, long time. I've been cooking since I was about 18. So I've been cooking for like 30, 33 years. And I think I've got some things pretty much nailed. I'm not a sophisticated cook, really. I don't do... I don't do, like, elaborate... Okay, let's put it this way. I don't do elaborate, like, French cooking or, or, you know, the stuff that's really complicated. Um, But I do quite elaborate um, ethnic cooking. Let's call it that. Let's call it that. Okay, I'm now walking Snowy again, or rather carrying her up to her business spot because she's become an ordinary little critter in recent times when i first first walk she does not poop she studiously avoids pooping no matter how long i stay out with her and then an hour later i have to take her out again because then she needs a poop for god's sakes no we can't you just get it together do it i mean what's the difference between eight o'clock and nine o'clock to your little bowels oh anyway Shouldn't be talking about that one, but no, an episode about food, really, should we? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've been passionate about cooking for a long, long time. Um, my mother's Hungarian, and she used to cook delicious Hungarian food for us. She was a really good cook. She was a better pastry, like dessert, cakes, and than, than, main, than savoury, but she made really nice Hungarian food, and... You know, I grew up eating stuffed peppers and uh, a lovely dish called lecho, also made from peppers. Um, Rakot krumpli, which is, um, oh, it's a really, really good potato dish. It's like, it's like um, coin, coin size, thick, coin thickness slices of, of potato layered with, um, with sour cream and egg and slices of sausage and baked in the oven. Oh God, it's good. It's really good. I haven't had that in years. Um, she used to also be really good at making um, Wiener schnitzels, pounded thin, veal, pounded thin, breaded and deep fried, shallow fried actually. Um, what else? What else did I really like? Um, oh yeah, there was this dish with sauerkraut. Can't remember what it was. That was really good. The sauerkraut dish. Can't remember what that was. Um, yeah, so a lot of the Hungarian food was sort of Austrian as well, Austro-Hungarian, I suppose. Kind of blends a bit. Um, goulash, goulash, not goulash, goulash, uh, is not a stew. It is not a stew. It is a soup. Um, as any true Hungarian will will tell you. 
in the in outside of Hungary, everyone gets it wrong. It's meant to be a soup. I mean, it's a thick soup, so I suppose, yeah. What other? Anyway, look, I'm <laughs> so I. This, 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 that was a big culinary influence on me, my mother. The other big culinary influence, like a lot of British people, we love our Indian food. Good God, we love our Indian food. Um, I've talked about this on Discord or or sent um, scabrous messages to people declaiming, and I think I've even mentioned on the podcast about how there is no good Indian food in, in America. I will stand by that. I am really sorry to make such a sweeping generalization given only my experience, but I have eaten in dozens and dozens of Indian restaurants in many places in this country. And the reason I can sort of say it, not definitively, but pretty much definitively, is I've eaten in the best food cities in in the country, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, and also, I'm a good enough cook to know what a well-cooked dish is regardless, because I understand some of the things about balancing flavors and so on and so on and so on. And most of the, there's amazing food in America, absolutely stunningly good food in America, and there's no good Indian food. And my belief is, Snowy, you are going to stay here and do your business. Sorry, I'm... I'm I'm getting, I'm getting firm. <laughs> this is not a good juxtaposition, is it? It really isn't. Um, anyway, the reason I can... And, and, and I think the reason is that there just haven't been enough generations of, of Indian immigrants to, to the US. I think there's also a question of authenticity and needing to, to make food that appeals to the local palate, and I get that. And I'm not saying that English Indian food is necessarily more authentic it isn't at least your typical high street curry is not more authentic um or it's definitely better but it's not more authentic because a whole bunch of stuff was invented in the uk to appeal to the british palate but over the decades and decades and decades the first indian restaurant opened in 1870 or something um Viraswamis in central London. It's, it's been, you know, we've had Indian food, Indian restaurants for 150 years. And the history of Indian cooking in England, or at least Indian recipes, goes back 300 years, maybe even 400 years. So um, we've Im- embodied it until relatively recently. The most popular dish in England, the most eaten dish was chicken tikka masala. Now, chicken tikka masala does not really exist in India. Butter chicken exists, which is about the closest analogue to it. You don't tend to get cream in Indian dishes. If you add milk products, it tends to be yogurt, certainly, or ghee, butter. But cream, not so much, really. That's a very kind of British thing to have done. It's sort of kind of, I I don't know, it's like putting some kind of fancy Frenchness to it, which doesn't really work. So chicken tikka masala is, is not an authentic dish. But it's, it's a really good dish when it's done well. It's very tasty. Um, so I, I started, eat, started eating Indian food at like the age of seven. And I developed a real taste for, for that highly spiced, very hot food. Um, there are silly people in England who go out on a Friday night and make, the, make an effort to eat the hottest curry they can possibly find, which has led to this sort of arms race. And now... There are places where you can order things like fowls, which make Vindaloo seem like a walk in the park. And that is, for me, that's kind of, that's a bit silly. I mean, there is super hot Indian food in India as well, but it's not just about the heat. So, I naturally 
not naturally, but I, I became interested in cooking and I started learning a few things from my mum. And then, and then when I went off to, um, when I left home for the first time, I, I decided I'm, I'm going to try and make a curry. <laughs> and that first curry had to be put in the bin. <laughs> for some reason, I thought I didn't need to follow a recipe. <laughs> this was my first mistake. My second mistake was just, was also thinking that, well, this sauce isn't thick enough, so I'm just going to pour some flour into it, some wheat flour. Just pour it in and stir it around. I didn't understand about how you combine flour into sauces at that point. So what came out was basically this claggy, tasteless mess that um, with lumps of raw flour in. Charming, eh? <laughs> went in the bin and that was an important actual that was an important lesson for me <laughs> taught me I had to actually study this stuff I couldn't just wing it like I did so many things in my life um I wasn't a very studious person I really wasn't but here was something I needed to study if I was ever going to make anything even vaguely palatable because those flavors of Indian food are super complex. They're made from a dance of many different spices, of many different ingredients, herbs, oils, butters, meats, shrimp, you know. And not just that, not just that. It's not just these ingredients. It's precisely how they are prepared and the order in which you cook them and even the size to which you cut certain ingredients you have to learn that shit and that's not none of it's intuitive so it's quite interesting that a lot of the a lot of the cooking techniques are based on this idea of bodily health um now i don't necessarily believe any of that stuff or at least i'm not a follower of ayurveda i think it's much more commonly understood as a medical practice um, uh, like a, a holistic medical practice, but but actually a lot of the, the evolution of recipes came from this trying to understand what various spices and chili and and various other things that we ingest do to our bodies. So it's kind of an interesting backstory to that. Um, but yeah, you really have to understand how these spices are combined and how how you prepare them, um, because if you get them wrong, you ruin the dish. So the, the spice blend is a complex thing. It's not, curry powder is, is a complete bastardization. Um, if there's one tip I would give you, do not ever buy curry powder. There is no point. It is, it is often uh, a very unbalanced mix. It's far, far better to buy the individual spices, even, even just the dry powdered spices from, you know, the, you know, from off the, on the shelf. Um, you know, the, Ultimately, if you really want to get into cooking good Indian food, you do need to buy whole spices as well. What I taught myself, actually, is, is how to prepare my own spice blends from whole spices. Now, that is a level of attention to detail that I actually don't think you need to do because it's very time-consuming. What you basically do is buy the raw spices, you roast them, and then you grind them, and, and then you make your own powder. Now, yes... They, they do have a, gr a much better aroma when you do this because the whole spice retains its flavor much longer than, than the ground spice. As soon as you grind a spice, much like a coffee bean, it starts losing its flavor. The, the volatile compounds in it start evaporating or reacting to oxygen or whatever it is they do. 
So, um, yes, but in, in the end, and, and I learned this over years, there are certain things that you do that have a huge effect on the flavor and others that have a, a minute, sometimes even unidentified, uh, um, imperceptible effect on the flavor. So you have to just, just weed out the stuff that you don't need to do because honestly, there are a bunch of shortcuts you can take. At my worst, let's say, <laughs> my worst level of, of um, obsessive attention to the detail, I could spend eight hours cooking Indian food. <laughs> you know, I would start in the morning, I would finish just before dinner time. And that, okay, I did that quite a lot, but it's not necessary. I've actually figured out in the intervening years a load of shortcuts. So my evolution of learning how to cook Indian food was was kind of it was interesting and i think there is there's also a very interesting lesson for for game masters especially those who want to design their own games um or, or write their own scenarios and uh, i'll get there at the end but let's let's see how we get there so you know the first thing i did was i bought the curry bible there is a book called the curry it's actually called the curry bible by pat chapman um, and it's kind of like the secrets of how you make good Indian, uh, uh, good curry house Indian food. Um, it's actually not super authentic in terms of, let's say, real Indian food, but it's it certainly is a way of making Indian food that tastes like the food you get in restaurants, and that in itself is a huge step forward. Because if you follow Indian um, recipes from kind of standard cookbooks. It never tastes good. It really doesn't taste good because um, it doesn't, they, they don't explain to you how to create those flavors. They may well have re some relatively authentic ingredients, but they, they won't tell you how to create those, those wonderful flavors and more importantly, textures that you get. And the basis for the Pat Chapman um, theory or book is, is, is the curry base, is the curry sauce itself which actually is kind of the most important thing. And if you go into any high street Indian restaurant, there will be vats and vats and vats of this stuff being cooked. But, and, and if you're running a restaurant, absolutely, that is the right way to go. There is no way that any restaurant, apart from a Michelin three-star, there's no way that any restaurant can afford to make every single dish from scratch for each customer. They can't. But the problem is, in the Indian context, what this means is you have this base curry sauce, which goes into more or less every dish, and then they add more or less chili, more or less other things, different different kind of base ingredients, or, or different, um, let's call them primary ingredients, like the, the lamb or the fish or the meat or the chicken or you know whatever. But in the end, they're all just versions of this curry base. Now, that curry base may be very good, and I'll explain in a minute how to make it. So I just looked at my recording and I realized I'd recorded about 25 minutes on how to cook a curry. So I have cut almost all of that out because frankly, no one needs to hear that. Although if you do want to hear it, <laughs> just send me, send me a message on Discord or send me an email to andy.goodmania at gmail.com and and I will send you the recording. It's 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 if you want to learn how to cook curry, it's it's actually not a bad um, not a bad primer. 
So, in order to get this episode in, because I could just keep going, I probably will think about starting a new podcast on cooking curry. Because I realise I've got a lot to say. <laughs> but how I got to the point where I can now do that is, is actually the four stages of, of cookery. Now, gosh, the air quality is really bad today. That's why I was breathing even more heavily than normal going up the hill. Four stages of cookery. And this actually applies to any skill. Anything to do with creation. So it's really good. And the person that came up with this was Ferran Adria, who probably one of the most influential cooks of the last 50 years. He, he invented molecular gastronomy. He, his restaurant El Bulli, El Bulli in, um, in Catalonia, northern Spain, was for many, many years the, regarded as the best restaurant in the world. He, he closed it down. There was a few little scandals around it, but let's not go into that. It's not really well known. But um, he's now opened up many other restaurants, tickets in Barcelona. And other, anyway. So anything that you see now as, as kind of contemporary cooking is kind of down to him. Spherification, um, sous vide cooking, um, all kinds of, you know, like low temperature cooking in sealed vacuum bags. That's, that's all him. He invented all of that, or at least figured it all out. Plus a load of other stuff that no one would ever try in a home kitchen. So he describes there being four stages to cooking. Stage one, you learn to follow a recipe. Stage two, you learn how to modify a recipe. Stage three, you create your own recipes. And this is the point where most people end. And actually, if you apply that to, to any type of creative pursuit, you start by learning it, then you learn how to riff on it, to modify it, and then you create your own from whole cloth. Everyone, I assume, thinks that's where, you know, that's where the creative journey ends, really. But for an Adria, I suppose due to his experience, realized there was a fourth stage. And he said, that's when you invent language. And it seems like a bit like non sequitur. It's like the other three are a clear progression. So what does he mean by invent language? What he means by that is you actually introduce entirely new linguistic concepts or terms or ideas into, into a discipline that never existed before, that were never considered part of it. So, i.e. molecular gastronomy, which was his biggest invention. No one had ever put food and molecular reactions together, even though all cooking is a molecular reaction, actually. Um, if you think about all the things we do in cooking, we are... We are um, orchestrating molecular reactions to create certain flavors by combining things, by, by heating them, by searing them, by frying them, by mixing them together, um, by pickling them, by doing all kinds of things. What we're doing is, is in a very controlled way, instigating molecular reactions. So he took it to an extreme. He actually started looking at chemistry and thinking about some of the reactions in chemistry that could be introduced into cooking. So he, the, so spheric, spherification, for instance, he realized that there are ways of getting a liquid to kind of form into a ball. 
without any, just by the application of certain um, molecules, you could get a liquid to essentially become a fragile ball of liquid, <laughs> which you could pick up on a spoon, maybe not in your fingers, and then you could put it into your mouth and it would just explode in your mouth and the liquid would then be in your mouth. Now that's something purely derived from chemistry, but he introduced that into cooking um, amongst many, many other things. So he's a good example of how you create language. Now, in gaming, think about it. Who has created language in gaming? I mean, obviously Gygax and Arneson, they created language. There was no language before them. Or at least it was the language of, um, of miniature wargaming. Um, and if we, if we look at the, the years since, um, I would say... Well, of course, I'm going to say Sandy Peterson and, <laughs> and Greg Stafford introduced language. Of course, I'm going to. But perhaps in a way they didn't, because they were doing more like stage three, which was creating their own stuff from existing material. <sighs> I suppose fate. I suppose powered by the apocalypse. I suppose Ron Edwards. Huh. I mean, I'm not a gaming historian, as I've said many times before. And I'm sure other people would have different touchstones. But if you think about the times when language shifted in gaming, that there aren't that many moments. It, it tends to be, you know, and if you think about your gaming evolution, you start learning a recipe. You start by reading a rule book and running a module, generally. Now, of course, some people skip ahead and start creating their own stuff immediately, and it's probably not very good. Because, <laughs> as I found out when I tried to cook my first curry without reading a recipe, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, <laughs> and I had to throw it away. So you do have to put that time in at the beginning to learn the recipes, and then you can start tweaking. And this is probably, this is where I get to, where I got to. I don't want to go beyond the improvising a recipe. Um, or riffing on an existing recipe. I don't want to create my new things whole cloth. Um, although I do that in cooking, sort of, maybe. Maybe I don't, actually. Maybe that is my sweet spot, is um, modifying. Modifying. Inventing is kind of a different level of engagement. And I'm not that interested in going there, but plenty of people are, and kudos to them. And if you can get to the point where you're inventing language, then... Wow, you've done something pretty impressive um, in any field. Yeah, flavor. <laughs> <laughs>